Good morning, church. I hope you guys all had a Merry Christmas. It's so good to be with you this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Chad Lowe. I'm the interim campus pastor here at the church, and I'm so thankful that you are with us worshiping this morning. Um, I want to let you know that um, I, uh, I, I'm not feeling super great, so today is going to be a little different than it has been in the past. Um, so one of the things that's going to be different is I'm going to be using my notes today instead of um, where I normally just preach without notes. And the other thing is that I won't be standing at the steps afterwards to shake your hand. This is because I love you, and I don't want to get you sick. So um, I'm going to be like peacing out right after I preach, just because I love you and because we have a baby coming, and I want to make sure that I'm not sick when she's born. Um, so, so because that's going to be a little different, but I do want you to know that we are so thankful that you're here, and I just want to say welcome. Um, actually, at Tri-Village Church, we have a saying that you're not just welcome, but you're also wanted and needed here. And we truly, truly mean this. I hope that my absence doesn't make you feel unwelcome or unwanted or needed. We do love you, and we are, we are so thankful that you are worshiping with us today. Um, we are finishing up our fifth week of our Advent series, where we've been looking at the promise of Christmas. We've been going through looking at five different people or different groups of people and the ways that their lives intersect or interact with the birth of Jesus Christ. And so as we've been going through, we've been seeing that the Lord has something to teach each and every one of these people. There's something that they need, and consequently, there's also the same thing that we need in our lives Today. And so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. But before we read, there's something that you might notice as we read. The first is that we've already celebrated Christmas. So why are we still talking about Advent? And that's a great question. But we're focused on Christmas because the realities and implications of the message of Christmas changes our lives. The realities and implications of the message of Christmas is something that we need not just for the day of Christmas, but each and every day of our lives. And so we are still focused on the message of Christmas today, even though Christmas Day has passed. And secondly, we're actually going to be looking at a moment where we're going to be focusing on John the Baptist today. And in this moment, it takes place right before Jesus's earthly ministry. So both John and Jesus are, are fully grown adults at this point. Um, but we see that what's happening in this passage portrays the very reason of why Jesus Christ came, the very reason and message of Christmas. So let's open up and go to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We stand out of reverence and respect for the word of God. If you're with me, say amen. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one comes after me who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this week we even got to celebrate the fact, the reality that you came to us. Lord, that you came, you dwelt among us, and you came with a purpose, a mission to save us from our sins. Lord, we we get to stand here today because we live in light of that reality, not just that you came, but that you also died on our behalf. And not just that you died, but that you rose again in victory. And God, that at every every tribe, every nation, every tongue, we bow down at the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, that the power of your spirit shows us and illuminates the realities of your word. Lord, we pray that we would not leave unchanged. We pray that the words of your truth would grab our hearts today, that we would have minds to think and to ponder the truths of your word, that we would have eyes to see where we fall short, and that our hearts would be turned and yearning and longing for you. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So earlier this week, um, I got a text message from someone in my family um, saying that they wanted to have a phone call with me whenever it was convenient for me. And you may know that when you get a text message to have a phone call, um, something's wrong. Um, it, it probably doesn't mean that someone died because otherwise they'd just call you. If they wanted to talk to you, they would just call you. And if they just wanted to shoot the breeze, they'd be texting you. So I knew that I got this message and I was about to have an uncomfortable confrontation. Um, that there was something that was wrong and they wanted to address it, to talk about it. And so the thing that was wrong is that I am really, really bad at communicating with my family and friends. Um, I'm really bad at staying in touch with the people that I love. In fact, if you aren't in my immediate sphere of relational influence, I just am really bad at talking to you. So if you don't live five minutes away, which none of my family does, then I'm sorry, but I just, I really stink at communicating. And so my, my family member who called just wanted to make sure that everything was okay, that we were good, that there wasn't any issues other than my stupidity, um, just separating this barrier between us. And so I actually took this and, and I was really thankful that this, this person called me. I was really thankful that they were gracious and loving. They weren't like confrontational saying, hey, you're a terrible human being. They said, I love you and just want to be in your life. So I, I would hope that you want the same thing. So it ended up being a really good thing, but it was uncomfortable to start with. And the reason I bring this up is twofold. One, because I want you to be able to hold me accountable. So when you see me ask, hey, have you talked to your family? You're welcome, family, when you watch this. You, uh, you can know I'm doing this for you. Um, but then the second reason is because we all face uncomfortable circumstances in our lives. Maybe it's you getting a poor job performance review at work. Maybe it's you failing a test or a project, something that you have worked hard on. Maybe it's a close friend who calls you out for being a jerk or it's a, a, for compromising on your, on your values or your morals. Maybe it's someone who loves you who's having an intervention. Uncomfortable confrontations are when people who are interested in your development point out a flaw or misstep. This isn't people who hate you, who are trying to tear you down, who are trying to ridicule you. These are people who have a vested interest in your development. These uncomfortable confrontations have varying degrees of severity from you messed up to you are messing your life up. How we respond to these confrontations is really important. Oftentimes we get defensive and it's when we receive the critique that growth is able to happen. Well, we see in this passage that John is talking to the Jews, talking to the religious leaders, and he is having an uncomfortable confrontation with them. 
And this confrontation is directly related to the promise of Christmas. Jesus has come, and it has serious and immediate implications for their lives. The news that John is giving the Jews, that's kind of fun, the news that he's giving the Jews, is the same news that we need in our lives right now. And it has serious and immediate implications for us. So we're going to be looking at how the birth of Jesus is both the worst news and the best news we could ever receive. How the birth of Jesus is the worst and the best news. So let's begin by looking at the worst news. So before we get in, we need to understand something about the the status of where the Jews are coming from. We need to understand a few things to help us get the weight of what's happening. The Jews have been through a lot through their history to this point. They've been slaves to Egypt for 400 years. They had wandered in the wilderness after that for another 40 years. They were led by a number of judges and generations of kings who were wicked and moral, and some were just downright evil. And because of their disobedience for God, to God for centuries, they were sent into exile as a nation and almost entirely wiped out. But throughout the entire Old Testament, we can see their failures, their disobediences, their scruples. Sometimes it's even laughable. It's like, oh my gosh, they're messing up again. Like, don't you see you just did this? Your, your, your ancestors just did this. But through all of it, through every single moment, God was with them. He was protecting them, caring for them, disciplining them, speaking to them, loving them. But for the last 400 years, there's been silence. Nothing. Quiet. No prophets proclaiming the, the news of the Lord. God hasn't shown himself. There's no been, there hasn't been a pillar of fire or smoke. Silence. But then in one night, God shows up and there's a stirring all around Jerusalem. There's news that a king of the Jews has been born. And about 30 years later, finally, a messenger of the Lord speaks. People throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding area go out to hear from this prophet, the messenger of the Lord, to hear what he has to say. God has finally communicated with his people again. And this is what he says. One word, it's an uncomfortable confrontation. Repent. So why is this the worst news? I'll be honest, as I read it, I I think, that's not really bad. Just say you're sorry and kind of move on, right? Like, repent. Okay, cool. I'm sorry, God. Next. But it's the worst news because it means two things. First, it means that they and we are in the wrong. It's not just that there is something in our life that is out of line, that there's something in our life that's out of order. It means that our life is out of line. Our life is out of order. That you and I stand before God and you and I are guilty of disobeying the Lord himself. It means that there is a barrier between us and God. And guess what? We're the barrier. It means that we have been put on trial. The verdict has been reached. We have been declared guilty of all charges. The first worst news of repentance is that we are guilty. The second thing is it means that we are not in control. There's nothing that we can do about our mess. There's nothing that we can do to change our situation. We need to understand that this isn't a false sentencing. No mistakes were made in this hearing. We stand guilty and we stand helpless. This is the worst news. I think the picture as I think about this is similar to that of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet who was given a message to proclaim to a wicked nation in this capital city of Nineveh. He was sent to them to let them know that their sinning against the Lord is going to bring judgment. 
Now, when the king of Nineveh hears the coming destruction, this is how he responds in Jonah chapter 3. He says this, Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we won't perish. His response is one of repentance. And John is calling all of Israel and consequently us as well to repent. We're called to do the same thing. The coming of Jesus is not just a call to believe in him as Lord and Savior. It's a call to see the sin in our own lives and to repent of it. You see, if we preach the gospel but fail to speak on repentance, we're not preaching the gospel at all. We have to preach repentance and believing in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So now that we've seen how this is the worst news, let's see how two different groups of people respond to this news. First, we're going to see how the religious leaders respond to this news, this call, this this affront of repentance. And then we're going to see how the Jews respond to it. So first, the religious leaders. In verse 7, it says this, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers. It's a really nice thing to say. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up for children. He can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. See, the religious leaders had come to hear John's preaching as a means of evaluating it. They had come to critique and assess if the craze that everyone has been talking about, this guy that everyone's going to listen to, is aligning with their teaching. This wasn't a form of shepherding the flock. This was a form of power. This is a power play. This was a form of self-asserted righteousness. And the reason that we understand that, the reason we know that is because of John's harsh critique of them. He calls them out for fake repentance. If you had repented properly, there would be fruit. They hear the command to repent and they're being called out as guilty, but they respond first with denial. We see throughout the the entire New Testament, even as Jesus confronts the, the religious leaders, that they virtually say, I'm not in the wrong. They see themselves as righteous, not as guilty. They disagree and points to their achievements. Look at what we've done. Look at how we've obeyed the law. Look at how we have been so faithful to what God has said. Look at our righteous deeds. How can you call us guilty? How can you call us to repent? We're the teachers of the law for crying out loud. We don't need to repent. But this is really legalism. This is works-based righteousness. They don't see themselves as sinners. They see themselves as righteous under the law. They rested on their ability to earn God's favor. So their first first response is denial. I'm not really guilty. Look at all the things that I've done for God. But then the second response is defensive. They say, but I'm a child of Abraham. Because they assume that they are good to go because of who their forefather was. They assume that they're already in because of the line that they come from. But I hate to tell you, there are only children of God, not grandchildren of God. Let me say that again. There are only children in the kingdom of God, not grandchildren. It doesn't matter if your mom went to church. It doesn't matter if your grandparents were believers. It doesn't matter if you came from a line of pastors or missionaries, if somehow that made your life better. It matters if you, yourself, see your sin, repent, and believe that Jesus is capable of saving you. It doesn't matter what we do. It matters what Christ has done for us on the cross. 
It matters that at Christmas he became flesh and dwelt among us to save us from our sins. You see, the only way for us to truly believe that in Jesus as our Lord and Savior is if we see our need for him to be our Savior. Otherwise, what's he saving us from? It's not from our sin, it's just from undesirable circumstances, maybe undesirable people. You see, if we don't see ourselves for who we really are as sinners, then we will never see what we really need, our saving. If we don't see Jesus as our redeemer, then we will only see him as a divine real estate agent, setting up a future home in paradise for us. I'm going to say that again. If we don't see who we are as sinners, we will never see our need of saving. And if we don't see Jesus for who he really is, that he is our redeemer, we will only want him to be our divine real estate agent, setting us, setting up a paradise home for us in heaven. We too respond in denial. We don't see that we are sinful. We actually say, no, no, I'm pretty good. I'm fine. Like, I'm not, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't, like, slapped a child or something. Like, I'm good. Like, I'm fine. We don't see ourselves as guilty. So we're in denial or we get defensive. Maybe you do see, like, okay, I've done some things wrong, but it's not that bad. It's not like the worst thing. We don't see ourselves as helpless. We don't see ourselves as guilty. But to further press this in, to illustrate it, I want to I illustrate it this way. Let's say that I was to lie. And now some of you might go like, was it like a white lie? Is it that matters? Lies or sin? But let's say that I was a blatantly, uh, uh, egregiously, sinfully lying, that I was trying to protect myself and mislead the person I was communicating with, okay? Let's just say that I was lying. So let's say I lied to a stranger, just someone I didn't know on the street. They asked me something, and I lied to them. There's probably going to be little to no consequences in my life, right? I'm probably not going to see that person again. There's probably going to be no immediate ramifications that I'm going to feel ongoing. But let's say that I were to lie to a friend or maybe someone that I love. Well, then I might be facing a broken or estranged relationship from that point on. Let's say that I were to lie to the police. Well, then I'm likely going to get arrested. And let's say I were to lie to a judge, then I'm going to prison, And let's say I were to stand before the president and lie, well, now I'm facing treason. See, who we wrong has significant impact on the consequences of our wrong. How much worse for us to wrong a holy God? How much more uh, insidious, how much more evil is it for us to wrong a just, pure, and holy God? Who we wrong matters, and I, just, I stand before God guilty and worthy of total destruction. We can deny it, we can try to defend it, we can try to defend ourselves, but it doesn't change the reality that we're wrong. You can deny it all you want, but you and I are sinful. We are wicked, and that's the point that John is making. And he's saying if there was proper repentance in our lives, there would be fruit. So a lot of ways we look like the religious leaders. But now let's see how the Jews respond and how they respond to this message, this uncomfortable confrontation of repentance. And it says this in verse 5. But people went out from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan confessing their sins, and they were baptized by the Jordan River. See, the Jews came to hear the message of John. They were confronted with the reality of their shame and their sin, and their response was completely different. They confessed their rebellion, they identified that they were wrong, and they owned it. They said, I am wrong, I see myself as guilty and in need of grace, mercy, and repentance. 
And then the second thing we see is that they get baptized. They don't just confess, but this is an act of submission. This wasn't a baptism identifying that they needed Christ to save them because he hadn't died on the cross yet, but it was a transformation that was taking place. It was identifying that they deserve death, but there is hope in life because of the gracious work of the Lord. And so when it comes to us, when we talk about why we get baptized, we get baptized because it symbolizes that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, but have been raised to life with Jesus Christ. That we are a sinner worthy of divine judgment, but we have received grace upon grace upon grace. That's the message of Christmas. And so that our life is not identified, is now identified with Christ and that we are part of the kingdom of heaven. See, our response to this uncomfortable confrontation, our response to identifying and owning our sin should draw us to confess and to repent and to live transformed. Now, we've talked about repentance. I've been saying it a lot, and, and, but I think it's important for us to identify, to, to define what exactly repentance is. And so Kevin DeYoung actually writes, wrote, wrote on, on this, and he, he defines that repentance is not three things, but it is two things. So it is not, uh, repentance is not regret, embarrassment, or apology, but it is a change of mind and a change of behavior. So it's not regret, embarrassment, or apology. It's a change of mind and a change of behavior. So first, let's see. It's not regret. It doesn't mean that you just feel bad about the situation that you're in. I think of when I was in high school and I'd do something dumb, which would happen all the time, um, I would get grounded, I would lose my privileges, and while I was suffering the consequence of my actions, I would regret the things that I did. Like, man, that was really dumb, Chad. When are you going to learn? But it wasn't because of what I had done that I was repentant. I just didn't like facing the consequences of my actions. And so you see, regret isn't necessarily repentance. It can be a part of it, but it isn't the thing itself. Secondly, we see that embarrassment isn't repentance. What I mean by that is, imagine that you are gossiping about someone, that you're standing outside in the foyer after this, and you're talking about someone, can you believe that person? Like, oh my goodness, did you see what she did? And then you find out that she was standing right behind you, and that she heard everything that you said. And you're like, oh. And you feel totally embarrassed. Like, and you might even go and apologize and say, I am so sorry. Like, I didn't mean any of that. I, oh, that was just terrible. I'm so sorry you heard that. You see, that repentance isn't a repentance of remorse in your life, but embarrassment for what you have done. So just because you feel embarrassed doesn't mean that that is repentance. And lastly, we see that apology isn't repentance. Now, apology is is a huge part of repentance, but it doesn't mean that you are repentant. You may have heard this before. No offense, but, and then they say something really offensive. Or when they apologize to you, they're like, I'm so sorry that you were hurt by what I said. You know, I'm so sorry that you felt like what I did wasn't nice, you know. It's not necessarily sorry for or remorse for what you've done, but you're just sorry that they didn't receive it well. You're sorry that you feel shame for how you've acted, but you aren't actually regretting your action at all. You see, repentance is not regret, repentance is not embarrassment, and repentance is not just an apology. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of behavior. And let's look at how it's a change of mind. It's a change of mind about how you, who you are, a change of mind about your sin, and a change of mind about God. It's a change of mind about you. It means that fundamentally, I see myself as not a good person. That I am not the king of this world or even of my life. It's not about me. Repentance is seeing that there is a greater king and it's not me. 
And it's also how I change my mind about sin, that I am actually in the wrong, that my actions have consequences, and that I don't live, think, or feel as I should. And lastly, it's a change of mind about God, that he is trustworthy, that his word is true, that he is able to forgive and to save, and that we believe that Jesus is king and that he wants what is truly best for me. You see, first it's a change of mind, but then it's also a change of behavior. It's one thing to admit that you have been going in the wrong direction. It's a completely different thing to stop and to go in the other direction. So it's both a change of mind and a change of behavior. But I want us to know that as we've been talking about repentance, and we've been talking about this need for, for repentance, repentance is not just for the unbeliever. Repentance is not just for the new Christian. The gospel is not just for people who are starting their journey with the Lord. We repent daily because we need the gospel every single day of our lives. We repent because we are guilty of sin and we have a divine redeemer who is showing us grace and mercy and we submit to him each and every day. We are called, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, to pick up our cross daily to deny ourselves and to follow him. So now that we've seen how this message of Christmas is first the worst news, that it's a call for us to identify the the ugly, the gross, the wicked, the evil sin in our lives, that we are tethered to it, that we ourselves are sinful, that's a change of mind and a change of behavior. Let's look at how it's the best news, that Jesus didn't just have to come, he was glad to come. So the best news comes from the second part of John's message. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does this mean, the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, it means that Jesus has come to earth. It means that God himself has taken flesh to be with his people. It means that there is hope in our repentance. It means that there is hope in our sentence. The blessing of heaven is colliding with earth, and it's the best news ever. John tells the religious leaders in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So why is this the best news? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. It's the best news because John can only baptize with water for repentance, but there is someone who has come that is greater. The promise of Christmas is that another has come. He is greater than the prophets because his message brings salvation, not just condemnation. He's greater than the priest because his blood is the sacrifice that's made and it fully atones for our sins. That we find purity in the blood of Jesus Christ. He is greater than the kings because he is the good king. He was victorious over sin and death and his kingdom has no end. He has come to save his people from their sins. He has not just come to hear their repentance but to take the place of their sentence. The one who is righteous and powerful has come to place the guilty and the helpless so that we can be declared righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ and that we can be given the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the best news because God who made everything, who spoke life into existence, who breathed breath into our lungs, chose to take our punishment so that we could be free. This is the best news ever. It means that we're transformed. It means that we've gone from death to life, from guilty to righteous, from sinner to saved, from orphan to adopted, from outcast to insider, from reject to chosen. We have a new name. We have a new identity, a new purpose, and a new home. So we repent unlike Nineveh, 
who repented with the hope that God would save. We repent with the confidence that he already has. We repent because God is worthy and because God is gracious to save. So the question is, what do you need to repent of? Chad, what do I need to repent of? How am I standing in opposition to a holy, just, and forgiving God? Charles Spurgeon writes something that's both incredibly humbling and incredibly encouraging, which is pretty typical of Charles Spurgeon. And he says this, Remember that the man who truly repents is never satisfied with his own repentance. We can no more repent perfectly than we can live perfectly. However pure our tears, there will always be some dirt in them. There will always be something to be repented of, even in our best repentance. But listen, to repent is to change your mind about sin and Christ and the great things of God. There is sorrow implied in this, but the main point is the turning of heart from sin to Christ. If there be this turning, then you have the essence of true repentance, even though no alarm, no despair should ever cast their shadow upon your mind. 1 John 1 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them, to forgive our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. God gives us grace. He doesn't allow us to wallow in our remorse or regret, but we receive freedom and repentance. He has taken our shame, he has taken our regret, and he delights in forgiving his children. Like the prodigal son, God celebrates in those who turn to him. And so the call of of Christmas, the message of Christmas, is a call that God has come, that his people would repent, and that he would offer salvation. This is the best news possible. That he allows us to repent, that he enables us to repent, that he he hears our repentance, and he takes on our sentence. Repent and receive life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you have come, you have come to save us from our sins, Lord, that in your name, Jesus is salvation for for our sins, for our transgressions, for our wickedness, for our rebellion. God, I pray that we wouldn't have hearts that are hard to the message of your gospel, but Lord, that we would see where we are wrong and we'd be quick to repent, we'd be quick to confess, and that we'd receive life. Lord, I pray that if there's anything that we need to, that I need to, that, that your church needs to repent of, even as a church, Lord, that we fail. Lord, that that there are sins that we are ignorant to. There are wrongs that we do that we are unaware of. And so, Lord, like like David in the Psalms, Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us both of our known and our unknown wrongs, our, our known and our unknown rebellion. Lord, that truly the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. You are our rock and redeemer. And in you we find hope. Amen.